The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, 5 a.m. in New York. Here's your top five at five. Back in the record book, stocks surging as the American economy takes off. The Dow above 34,000 for the first time ever. But you ain't seen nothing yet. China's economy growing nearly 20% to begin the year, the fastest ever, as all of us Americans sat home and shopped online. But it does come with one big caveat. In D.C., President Biden sending a message to Vladimir Putin and putting our diplomatic cards on the table. Former U.S. Ambassador Thomas Pickering is here to weigh in on our strategy. Two days in, and Coinbase already catching the eye of one major tech investor. And your RBI will show you just how big the crypto boom really is. And get ready for retails, roaring 20s? When one CEO is telling CNBC about the future of the mall. It is Friday, April 16th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and good Friday, and welcome from wherever in the world you may be watching. I'm Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us to round out your week. All right, let's get a big check on your Friday money and see if we can end our week with a bang or maybe a whimper. Right now, we don't, we don't know. It's kind of mixed. Look at Dow Futures just turning green. But okay, so there's no big overall trend right now, but there certainly has been this week and this month. Overall, stocks largely keep booming. The Dow is on pace for its fourth up week in a row for the first time, well, since January. But it's doing it and crossing 34,000 yesterday for the first time in history. The index needing just 20 sessions to go from 33 to 34,000. And what's jaw-dropping, and this could be your RBI, but it's not. We have a different one. The Dow has now crossed four 1,000-point milestones so far this year. That is the most since 2017 when we had... Five, but what is it? It's only mid-April, and we've almost already broken that record. Of course, we know it gets a little easier when the numbers get bigger. Still, random but interesting. It is not just the Dow either. A number of major indexes also hitting all-time highs: the S&P 500, Nasdaq 100, and the Russell 3000. So, what can we take away from this? It's a very broad-based rally. Here's also what's interesting. Buyers are coming back into bonds as well. In fact, if you haven't noticed, and this is one reason why stocks maybe have taken off again, is that bond yields have ticked back down, nearly well, not quite below 1.5%, but they're below 1.6. So the markets, stocks and bonds, may be saying two different things, although stocks, particularly tech and other growth stocks, tend to go up when bond yields tend to go down. Something to watch. All right, let's go around the world now. It is green across the board in Asia after that huge GDP number out of China that we will 
bring to you more on in just one moment. And Europe just getting its Friday trading day begun. And wow, vive la France. No, not because they're higher across the board right now, but because when it comes to record highs, it is not just us in the U.S. I know we're being all jingoistic and everything, but guess what? A bunch of international stock markets have caught fire as well, hitting all-time or multi-year highs. Sitting at new highs, the France Cacaron 40, the Greece Athex, the UK FTSE 100, and you go, Finland, the Helsinki 25 also at new highs. So it's not just us, buyers coming into equities around the world. Speaking of, let's get back to your top economic story this morning, and that is China's economy. You may not believe this, but China's GDP jumped 18.3% in the first quarter. Look at that chart. Now, that is the strongest since at least 1992, and that's when official records began. Now, yes, this does come off pandemic slowdowns in their first quarter, year over year. But remember, China wasn't locked down for very long. Big cities, very tight for a shorter period of time. And their rebound being led by exports. Basically, in a very technical term, selling us and European consumers a bunch of stuff as factories race to fill orders overseas. That is one reason why we've shown you all those ships still stuck offshore in California and the shortage of shipping containers. They're making, we're taking. Also today, Robinhood has restored crypto trading after the platform experienced what it called a major outage last night. The issue coming amid huge demand for Dogecoin, which traded at near 30 cents. It was below a penny to begin the year. Started breaking higher after the CEO of ConAgra mentioned the crypto on the company's earnings call following tweets by Elon Musk. The CEO of American Eagle Outfitters, by the way, expects malls to boom once the country gets past the pandemic. We told you he was going to be on with Jim last night. And he was on Mad Money. And he said he expects customer traffic to rebound and the next decade to be a boon for business as people emerge from covid with confidence. The mall's not dead. The, the mall's still alive. It's just, it's just right now, people, people are still going and shopping, but, but people have to be careful. We're very excited about, you know, about the future of the mall. And, and we think that when, uh, when things get better and the pandemic goes away, we're still in the pandemic, but when it goes away, uh, you know, we could be looking at the roaring 20s. American Eagle reporting this week that business is already exceeding expectations on pent-up demand as consumers get out and spend their stimulus checks at stock up 71% to start the year. Well, back to our markets, the Dow closing above 34,000 for the first time yesterday. Markets are booming. But are we seeing a different story maybe between the bond markets and the stock markets? Joining us now to talk about what the heck is going on is Gibbs Wealth Management CIO and President Aaron Gibbs. Aaron, I need help because, gosh, stock markets here are up, Europe's up, China's up, the bond market's up, every single commodity in the world is up, non-fungible tokens are up, shoes are up, trading cards are up, art is up. What's, is there any value left anywhere? What, what is going on? It is tough. As a, as a value-focused investor, Brian, it is really hard to find anything that is remotely what you might want to call a value these days uh, across the board and across asset classes. I think one thing we have to take a look at 
for particularly for April, because a lot of this really bull run happened at the beginning of April. You know, the S&P is already up 5% just in two weeks. Um, a lot of it has come off of pretty anemic volume uh, within the equity markets. We've seen a lot less trading. Now, obviously, this week uh, with the Coinbase IPO, it seems that we've brought some of the, the trading volume back a little bit as investors get a little more interest in the market. But it does feel like people are taking a bit of a pause uh, from they're maybe they're they're trading obsessions their desk and they're actually perhaps getting out uh, as vaccinations and, and economies uh, reopen. Uh, so so I think we do have to take some of what we're seeing in April uh, with just a pinch of salt until we really see the the volumes really uh, go back to to higher to nor or what we would call consider normal levels. Um, but even within the value companies, it's tough. There's a lot of overvalued uh, options out there. Yeah. Uh, well said. I mean, I, I'm beginning to wonder. Listen, we all know, you, to your point, a million and a half people getting on a plane every day. The malls are packed. New Hampshire dropping its mask mandate yesterday. Texas, Iowa, Florida. People are living almost you know, 99% normal lives. Northeast a little bit slower. But forget about all that stuff, Aaron. The only question that matters, I guess, is how much of that, quote, reopen, which I hate that term because, like I said, a lot of states never really closed. How much of that is already baked in. Is it all baked in? Is it still a little to go? Or is it is it over overcooked? There's certainly some areas within, let's say, the reopening cyclical trade uh, where we're talking about uh, really looking at GDP growth, where it is overbought. You look at a lot of the materials manufacturing kind of types of companies. I mean, their valuations are, are, are hitting all new highs. It's, you just can't find value. Um, the bank still financials are actually doing pretty well, as particularly as interest rates have dropped. Um, financials are just one area that or that looks yeah. semi reasonably priced. Um, but you are seeing a lot of peaks, and and even in the commodity space, I think that's one area that um, is really sort of showing just how hot the economy is running. Is when you look at yeah. you know we talk about lumber, but lumber, copper, iron. Cotton, just every single commodity is near its 52-week peak. And when you look at the futures, they're all trading almost flat. So even if you go three months out, they're not pricing in any declines. Uh, so I think we're going to see this type of uh, you know, very high valuations, uh, just going into just all these types of yeah. different stocks, value and growth for at least another three months. You know, they say money doesn't grow on trees, but as we said earlier, Aaron, maybe money is trees. Lumber is up 57. Very quickly, are you buying banks? Very quickly. Are you buying any financial? Banks. I'm, I'm still buying banks. All right. They've had some blowout numbers this week. Goldman, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley due out later today. Aaron Gibbs, go plant a tree. In 20 years, it'll make you a lot of money. Aaron, we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Lumber's up 57% in 90 days. Good grief. All right, we come back. SPAC on defense. After one research shop calls that a pump and dump stock. Who is that? We'll show you. Plus, just two days is a publicly traded company in Coinbase. has already got a new bestie. That's right. We'll talk about who's doing some big-time buying. Later on, President Biden putting the pressure on both China and Russia. But will it work? Or will they test us? Former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Thomas Pickering, is here to weigh in. We're back right after this.
What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Time for your big three stock market stories right now. Let's go. Stock number one, QuantumScape, shares the EV battery maker ticking up after the company responded to a report from short seller Scorpion Capital calling them a pump and dump SPAC. QuantumScape, it dropped more than 12% in the regular session, but it did regain some of those losses. That is a battle to watch. Stock number two, PPG Industries, the paint company popping after posting blowout earnings and guidance. Guidance was also very good as everybody's fixing up their homes and ostensibly paying them. And stock number three is Coinbase. Of course it is. Still seeing a volatile start to the first days of the public market. And Kathy Wood's ARK Investments have snapped up $350 million worth of Coinbase in just the last two days. Despite that, Coinbase actually closed lower on Thursday, valuing the crypto exchange about 43% lower than the 112 billion it was worth at the peak of its debut. 112 billion. All right, still on deck on a more serious note. The state of education in America and what state, city, and town governments are getting it wrong when it comes to putting kids back in classrooms. A former New York City and Newark, New Jersey school official on how we may have failed our kids. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. It is time now for your daily COVID-19 vaccination update. We're trying to bring you some good news and some reasons to be optimistic amid all the scary headlines out there. Nearly 200 million doses have been administered into waiting U.S. arms of, as of about 8 p.m. last night, according to the CDC. More than 78.5 million people, or 24% of the total U.S. population, now fully vaccinated. More importantly, the majority of the at-risk population, primarily those over 65, more than well more than 50 percent states leading the way like maine new hampshire massachusetts connecticut and new mexico with more than 45 percent of their total populations with at least one dose of a covid 19 vaccine 
and almost a majority or nearly all, maybe all the people who won it over 65 have been able to get at least one shot. So some very good news on the vaccination front as well. Very quickly before we move on, something I posted on social media last night, just want to bring to you, spoke with a contact in Louisiana last night. Looks like that state and maybe some others may be hitting peak demand as well. Our Louisiana contact saying that they are not seeing any more demand for vaccines in much of the state, and it's now becoming ordered like a commercial product, meaning you need it, you get it, as opposed to simply being set there. Now, Louisiana has got a very low vaccination uptake rate, just something to watch, but we may be seeing peak demand in many parts of Louisiana and other states. Well, now that more and more vaccines are being distributed, schools around the country that have been closed for in-person learning are finally getting a chance to reopen. But how much damage has already been done to our kids, to our students? Our next guest tried to address that in a recent Time op-ed called Blue States are failing their students by not reopening schools. Here's how they got it so wrong. He joins us now. He is Propel America CEO and founder, Payman Rahanafard. He is also the former superintendent of schools in Camden, New Jersey, and worked in Newark and New York City as well. Payman, thank you for coming on. We've never met. I don't know you. I read your piece. I posted it. I thought it was fascinating. And I didn't want to make it political because, as you note, sadly, so much of any debate, I don't care if it's over our kids or flying or anything, has just become this kind of uh, gross, for lack of a better term, political fight. Has it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's as if epistemology is political. And we all had this, and I was guilty of it at first. We all had this knee-jerk reaction when COVID hit. You know, I identify as a progressive. And, you know, Trump came out, did certain things that progressives didn't like uh, without getting into those details. But it was really when he demanded that schools reopen, that was sort of the beginning of the end. Because the Democrats at that point, they adopted a, a simple heuristic. If Trump is for it, then we must be against it. And we never recovered. Yeah, and, th and that's it. And of course, again, I'm, we're not going to blame the former president, not going to blame the current administration. I don't want to dive into that world as well. But to your point, on a macro level, the way we kind of had, and the former administration, sort of this macho attitude around COVID, you know, hurt us in some ways at the beginning, probably, did it not? In a sense where, to your point, it was, well, if they want to reopen, there's no way we can because we care about our children and our grandmothers and our teachers more than they do. It's they and us. Absolutely. I mean, we uh, as we tend to do as a country, unfortunately, you know, my my personal opinion is that we just stink at complex social change. <laughs> we have a hard time centering the pendulum and meeting in the messy middle to uh, to figure out. Uh, solutions to complex problems. And that's exactly what, what, what happened here and is still happening. You know, the majority of students in progressive states like California are still not in person full time. Uh, and that's a tragedy. It is. It's a tragedy. Listen, we want to keep the teachers safe, the school administrators, the parents safe. We get that. I could probably find you a study somewhere that says schools are dangerous. You could probably find me a study that says Schools are safe, but everything we know, this is not last year. This is a year and a month into it, Payman. Everything we have seen, Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Medicine, schools can be made safe, although not inherently so. 
Everything we have seen from states like Connecticut, where nearly 90 percent of that densely crowded state's kids are in school and have been all year. What have we learned about schools and COVID? If you were running a district, what would you do? Well, I think, as you mentioned, you have to put the safety of teachers and students at the top of the list. Uh, And we know masking, proper ventilation, and testing. You do those three things, and you can dramatically mitigate uh, the risks of COVID spread inside of schools, even when there's community spread. And so, you know, that's the thing. Like, we've had the list. We've known that basically since this past summer. Uh, and there hasn't been a solutions-oriented plan in most school districts and most progressive, you know, as I argue in that bed, most progressive states and yeah. cities in our country. When I, Payman, this is a, a personal issue for me in a, in a way, not because I have kids. I'm a product of the Los Angeles public school district. My mother uh, dropped out of high school in, in uh, dropped out of high, she got her GED later. She's very proud to say, and I, mom, if you're recording this, I, I'm very proud of what you've done. But I'm a, I'm a product of the LA public schools. It was a long time ago, a different time. I get it. There's a million kids there that have been mostly out of school for the year. And when you think about the educational loss, okay, we always talk in the media, and I'm going to blame the media for a second, okay? Uh, Cases, and cases are, cases, cases. You know what we don't know? We don't know how many of those million kids are going to suffer their lives learning loss, right? Not going to be able to read at the same rate as wealthier suburban kids, maybe suffer from greater problems down the line. Do we need to start, stop looking at COVID like a zero-sum game, flashing the scary headlines of cases up on the screen and realize it's, a, it's an awful pandemic, but there's a, also trade-offs we have to consider about these kids 10 and 20 years from now who are losing. A buddy of mine's a principal at a New Jersey blue-collar middle school payment. says 30% of their kids have just vanished. These are poor and low-income kids. How are they going to make that up? Uh, You nailed it. You know, uh, I really believe that public policy is about trade-offs. And for the reasons we discussed earlier, because it all became so political, it's as if what we were trying to solve for is COVID must go to zero before we can open up schools. I mean, that's what it's felt like at times. Um, And as a result, here we are still trying to open up schools. And, you know, one of our most significant priorities when I was superintendent in Camden, New Jersey, which is a, you know, lower income city, uh, was trauma-informed care. And, and the reality that so many of our students, and I'm talking about pre-COVID, of course, you know, deal with significant toxic stress and trauma in their lives. And that manifests itself in really profound ways. You know, we're talking about health, mental health, uh, you know, all sorts of you know, issues that manifest themselves in a classroom. And this is a trauma that yeah. young people are experiencing right now. And very quickly, and again, I know we're over time, guys. I'm sorry. It's a hugely important topic. Have we placed, and with all due respect, because again, political, right? Have we placed too much emphasis on the CDC? These are little known, formerly little known government agencies with, as you wrote, a narrow but but important purpose. But now school districts can just point to states who point to this, who point to the CDC and say, well, they say we can't do it. I think, honestly, Payman, this is more now about fear of lawsuits than fear of COVID. Look, I, I really agree with you. You know, it goes back to the beginning of all this and when Trump was asking to reopen schools. And, you know, when I look back on it, it's sort of this bizarre thing that happened where, you know, 
Anthony Fauci became this bastion of uh, of truth and science. And, and you know, God only knows he's he's just trying to do his job. Um, but I think what happened was we we sort of deified him, and 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 we lost sight of the fact that the NIH and the CDC have a narrow, you know, critical but narrow set of priorities, and we have to juxtapose them or weigh them, I should say, against other priorities and, and take into account the devastating toll to education, to the economy. Uh, and we just never really took stock of all that. Yeah, millions of people out of the workforce, setting women back in some cases 20 years because largely they have borne the brunt of leaving the workforce to stay home with their kids. Again, we love all the teachers out there. We thank them all, putting, in some cases, their lives on the line. But to your point, payment, it is a zero. It's not a zero-sum game. There's a lot of considerations. A great op-ed. I'm sure you got a lot of feedback and blowback on it. But payment, <laughs> we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right, I'll repost that again today, folks. If you want to read it, we're back after this. Thirty-four thousand and beyond. Will we hit more new records for your money today as the American economy begins to boom? In defense of America, President Biden laying out his stance on Russia after imposing a series of sanctions. Russia seeks to violate the interests of the United States, we will respond. Former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Thomas Pickering, is here to weigh in. It is Friday, April 16th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome or welcome back. Good Friday morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us here. I'm Brian Sullivan. Let's jump right in and see how your money and investments look as we're uh, just about a little more halfway than through the 5 a.m. hour. Stock futures, they are now in the green, at least for the Dow. They're mixed overall, but we're watching the Dow. But why? You say, well, the pros don't watch the Dow. Why are you? Well, because the Dow is the number that we see in the general media. And 34,000, we like nice round numbers in the media. 34,000 was hit for the first time ever yesterday. And it took just 20 trading sessions to do it. Here's an RBI. We've now crossed four 1,000-point thresholds on the Dow this year. That's the most since 2017, when they did five. But that was all year. It's only mid-April. Seems logical we're going to break that record. Home Depot, United Health, Microsoft, the big gainers in the latest 1,000-point move. But it's not just the Dow. It's been a broad-based rally. Counted last night. 88 S&P 500 stocks hitting new all-time or multi-year highs on Thursday. Among them, we mentioned Microsoft. They've been red hot. But NVIDIA, O'Reilly Automotive, even Wells Fargo. Remember Wells Fargo, right? A scandal every year almost. Wells Fargo is hitting a new 52-week high. In fact, here's another bonus. 96.4% of stocks in the S&P 500 closed above their 200-day moving average yesterday. That is the highest percentage on record going back to our data, which goes back to 2002. So it may have been higher at some point, but who knows? And that's really high, by the way. And by the way, we're not saying touting the market. Be careful. As Craig Johnson yesterday said, technically, some things are starting to look maybe a little bit too hot on a macro level. Well, you know what else has been hot? Bank earnings. They've been surprising analysts and investors alike with every company that's reported reporting far better than expected results. Not just better, but way better. Morgan Stanley and BNY Mellon will be among the last to report later on today. 
For more now on the blowout first quarter performance, let's bring in Gerard Cassidy, head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy, large cap bank analyst at RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, I think you saw this coming. Uh, I'm not sure you saw it coming this good. What in the world has happened in the banks in the last quarter to give them these kinds of numbers? Brian, thank you for having me on. And you're right. We were anticipating that they were going to post good numbers, but these are better than good, to your point. And the reason that they're so strong, there are two driving factors. First is the very strong investment banking results that J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Bank America, all of Citigroup, all of the big investment banks have put up. But second was the loan loss reserve releases. You might recall last year, Brian, that the banks had to set aside hundreds of billions of dollars in anticipated credit losses due to the recession. Well, those credit losses have not materialized, and the banks now are bringing that money that was set aside back into earnings. And that's those are the two big factors why you're seeing such blowout earnings. Yeah. You think it's a one-quarter phenomenon based on the yield curve and 10-year yields moving? It's it's a good question, and we're expecting the earnings to remain very strong this year. We're upping our earnings estimates based upon what we saw so far this week, and I think what you're going to see is continued good earnings, but probably not at the record-breaking pace that you're seeing this week. So the investment banking results are probably going to quiet down a bit after the first quarter numbers. You know the IPO market has been red hot particularly with the SPACs, the Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations, that has really slowed down. But those loan loss reserve releases also will slow down through the remainder of the year, but they're still going to be favorable. I get the Goldman Sachs' numbers. I mean, Goldman Sachs always wins, it seems, right, Gerard? doesn't matter which way the market goes. They, they tend to come out on top because, because Goldman Sachs. Wells Fargo, you heard me mention, very quietly, a new multi-year high fake account scandal, management changes. They, they've been through a heap of problems. How have they come back? You think the problems are really behind Wells? I think what's happening here, as I like to say with the bank stocks, a rising tide lifts all ships. And so the benefits of the stronger economy not only lands on you know the front door of J.P. Morgan Chase, but also Wells Fargo. But the bigger news, to your point at Wells Fargo, is that they're working very diligently to put these problems from the scandal in 2016 behind them. And there's an anticipation yeah. now that the asset cap, which is part of one of the restrictions that was laid on them in 2018 as part of their cease and desist order, there's a real possibility now that the asset cap could be lifted possibly this summer, which is sooner than expected. Should that be the case, that's, I think, one of the driving factors why Wells is hitting new 52-week highs as well. Wow. We'll watch that. Certainly, maybe the investors buying in now for that. Gerard, I know you got another big day with BNY and Morgan Stanley. We appreciate you getting up early for us. Gerard Cassidy, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. All right. Yeah, thank you. All right, coming up, two big geopolitical stories that all of you, all, I mean, all of you should be watching today. President Biden imposing new sanctions on Russia, also meeting with Japan's prime minister, China, of course, on the agenda. We'll talk about both with former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Thomas Pickering. But as we head to break, three other headlines for you on this busy Friday. Number one, Cruise Line CEOs meeting with the CDC and the White House COVID response team yesterday. Sources tell us the execs pushed for sailings to resume this summer. Two, 
Robinhood responding to Massachusetts' move to revoke the company's broker-dealer registration. State arguing the platform tries to lure people into investing. But the company counters that Massachusetts is, quote, tempted to bring its residents back in time and reinstate the financial barriers that Robinhood was founded to break down, end quote. And three, the NFL signing sponsorship deals with Caesars Entertainment, DraftKings, and FanDuel. It is a huge move for the league. And it makes it officially open for sports betting. We're back after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. President Biden reestablishing the U.S. on the world stage this week. Yesterday unleashing several sanctions on Russian individuals and entities linked to 2020 election interference. Today, sitting down with Japanese Prime Minister Suga at the White House in an apparent attempt to challenge China's growing influence in the region and around the world. Kayla Taushi joining us with what we might expect from that. Kayla, good morning. Good morning, Brian. It marks a return to personal diplomacy under the Biden administration. The first visit by a foreign leader to the White House will be Japan's Prime Minister Suga, where the two countries are expected to talk about a host of issues and pledge cooperation. And President Biden is expected to express his support for Tokyo's holding of the Olympics just about 100 days away, even though the administration says it's still too early to say uh, how exactly the administration will endorse that. The two countries are expected to deepen ties and release a joint statement that pledges cooperation on climate, vaccines, and technology policy, with Japan expected to announce a $2 billion initiative to diversify supply chains and expand a 5G build-out beyond China's Huawei, which has been an issue across the globe. And that move underscores just how largely China will loom in these conversations, with the Biden-appointed delegation uh, arriving in Taiwan. Won this week. The administration is also condemning China's decision to hold a series of live fire military drills just off of the southwest coast of Taiwan concurrent with that visit. The administration says that those exercises and Beijing's decision to fly into Taiwan's airspace are all moves that threaten peace and stability and so expect a formal statement to condemn China's actions. Even so, the two countries, they do want to send a clear message to Beijing, but Japan must also walk a careful course, according to a senior administration official, because of its close economic ties to Beijing. The official said neither country is seeking to raise tensions or to provoke China. Now, remember, the Pentagon is currently undergoing a wholesale military review of its posture toward China. I'm told by sources that's expected to take about three to four months, and there could be some redirection of the troops being withdrawn from Afghanistan in upcoming months to the Western Pacific. The administration wants to refocus its efforts there, uh, both resources on the ground and the focus of leaders as they try to turn their views toward threats that in the words of the president, have metastasized. Brian? It's not just been Russia and China either, has it, Kayla? We're also dealing at the same time with very critical Iran nuclear talks. I mean, there's a sort of a trifecta of really important high-level geopolitical issues that are being pushed on and even testing the Biden administration right now. 
Yeah, and that's been a question from the beginning, uh, Brian. You know, this has been a very well-oiled and coordinated administration from the policy standpoint because so many of its appointees uh, have come from the Obama administration. But now there's this view that there are going to be a lot of external challenges from this administration. How will they handle it, especially in the absence of President Biden's uh, apparent ability to go and visit a lot of these leaders in person? This week, you've seen the Secretary of State step out, visit NATO leaders go to Afghanistan in an unannounced visit. And so they are trying to touch gloves with a lot of allies and make a, a personal appearance around the world to show where their priorities are. But it is difficult during a pandemic. And you yeah. will expect to see, Brian, a lot of that personal engagement ramp up in these coming months. Well, they are they are flying on their own planes. Everybody is is well into their vaccination as well. Maybe they could they could meet outside. It does seem possible, but for now, we'll, we'll do it this way. Kayla Tausche, we'll see you all day. Thank you very much. Well, today's summit with Japan comes just one day after the White House unveiled sweeping sanctions against Russia for the SolarWinds hack and meddling in the 2020 presidential election. Listen. I was clear with President Putin that we could have gone further, but I chose not to do so. To be, I chose to be proportionate. The United States is not looking to kick off a cycle of, ex of escalation and conflict with Russia. We want a stable, predictable relationship. If Russia continues to interfere with our democracy, I'm prepared to take further actions to respond. The president leaving the door open for more in-person talks with Putin in Europe this summer. All right, for more on this, the president's foreign policy playbook, let's join in now with former U.S. ambassador to Russia and the U.S. Thomas Pickering. Ambassador Pickering, thank you very much for joining us. Um, do you think that the White House and President Biden uh, did the appropriate response? Was it, as he said, sort of measured and calculated based on the perceived Russia problem with the solar winds hacking and election interference? Was it proportionate? I think, Brian, it was. One of the questions, however, is whether a purely proportionate policy is going to win the day here. And that may in itself uh, be part of what the president has to face in the days and months ahead. It's the opening of a policy that one could call iron fist and velvet glove. And some of it applies to China, as you just said. But it is very interesting because the president is ready to push back and says he's ready to push back harder. While at the same time, he spent some time yesterday keeping the door open to talks talking about a summit, talking about the possibility of meeting at a climate summit, talking about an invitation or possible invitation to get together, uh, opening the door to Putin to say, this is time we calm things. This is time we look for common interest. This is a time when we can work together. Whether that will work or not, most of us have our doubts, certainly right away. Putin is not responsive generally to that kind of an approach. Although the president may have some indication from his talk on Tuesday that that could be the case. And we'll have to wait and see how that develops. In the meantime, this policy, if not very carefully handled, uh, could end up in a situation where the president has taken steps and then Putin has taken steps and nobody has backed down. And the only two alternatives are to walk away from this policy on the one hand, 
or go to military activity on the other. God forbid we should ever get into that situation. And it appears the president is very much conscious of that. And obviously that's significant as well as we look at it down the road. Yeah. Well, well said, Ambassador. And I think that, you know, a lot of this and one of the reasons that I like to talk about the oil and energy markets is it's geopolitical. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline, Russia building a new pipeline that basically is going to give Europe 30 to 40 percent of their natural gas, particularly Germany. The Trump administration hated it, largely opposed it as well. Is that Vladimir Putin's ultimate goal? What does he want other than us to lay off trying to sell natural gas into China and and to Europe? In simplest terms, Brian, Putin wants to stay in power. Whatever keeps him in power will in one way or another be important to him. Staying in power relies pretty heavily on his being a big international player. Russia back. Russia a a major power. Russia controlling things or at least influencing things in their part of the world in a way that benefits Russia. And the president will have to contend with this. Whether we can find a common interest in this, I do not know. But there are some that are out there. We still cooperate on space. We still cooperate to some extent on Afghanistan, uh, as, as, as at the moment, uh, dwindling as that now seems. So yeah. let, let's look at that. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Suga of Japan is an important ally. And we should not forget the fact that we at the moment have both allies and the capacity uh, to collect back, if I could put it that way, allies who have in one way or another gone off a bit uh, because of the way in which the Trump administration seemed to disdain them, handle them, treat them roughly, demand money from them. Yeah, it's well said. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Ambassador Thomas Pickering, we appreciate your time this morning, sir. We'll get you back on soon. China menacing Taiwan with as many as 25 fighter jets the other day. We'll get you back on soon, sir, to talk about that. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Oh, you're welcome. All right, on deck. We'll get back to the markets and your money. They have been red hot. Kerry Firestone is here with some picks for you and whether names will keep hitting new all-time highs. Dow futures, we're now up 60. Happy Friday. We're back after this.
All right, let's get back down to the markets and your money and what has been a heck of a start to the week. And your next guest, one of our favorite people, says with the S&P 500 up 86% from the pandemic low last March, stocks need more than multiple expansion to keep this rally going. So let's keep it going with Kerry Firestone, chairman and CEO of Aureus Asset Manager, management CBC contributor, and no doubt the, I would just say, Kerry, the, the ultimate star of the halftime report. I said it, you don't have to. Uh, thanks for... Thanks for joining us, <laughs> Kerry. All right, if they need more than multiple expansion, what do they need? What's the more? The more is more earnings. So we know that this is going to be a good year. GDP growth expected to be between 6 and 7%, an enormous year for economic growth in the U.S., but that's built into stocks, right? We know that the market's gone really wild since the low last March. And for, for equities to move higher, we need to be discerning and pick the ones where earnings growth will not just be good, but they'll be better than expected. And yesterday, we saw an interesting thing happen with United Healthcare. It's one of the biggest components in healthcare in the S&P. They reported a better quarter than expected, 531. Then they raised guidance. That stock was very strong yesterday. That's the type of response that we will see from companies that beat expectations and ones that just meet may have trouble moving higher right here because that means multiple expansion and the market is not trading at a low multiple it's a pretty good you know full multiple well i mean there's the challenge carrie and that's why we leave it to people like you i mean how do we know who's going to be able to turn in the a plus earnings maybe the b's are easy united health obviously a name you like yesterday craig johnson recommended schwab on a technical level you think all this trading activity Maybe you could give them an A-plus for earnings as well. Yeah, well, we also own Schwab, and they had a very strong number. Their assets were up 9%. They've got the integration of USAA and Ameritrade. And while commissions have come way down, the commission and the price to trade options has not come down. And that's been quite a strong booster for their business. Interest rates going higher means that we think Schwab earnings will continue to grow. It's probably a stock we expect to hit $100 over the next 12 months. We really like that one. But again, it's been on a tear. It's an interesting uh, examination. We did a study of the 25 stocks across all of the U.S. that had the most earnest, uh, excuse me, analyst increases in estimates over the past few months, meaning analysts took their numbers higher or took their numbers lower. And for the first two and a half months of this year, it didn't matter. Stocks went up if they were reopening stocks, if they were electric vehicle stocks, if they were ones on the Reddit uh, sort of, you know, mm -hmm. hot list. And it and right now what we're seeing since March that there's a big impact on if earnings are going higher. Those stocks respond well to the, if they're going down, if estimates are going down, yeah. those stocks have been off 10 percent. So that, you know, if you can look and see what analysts are using, if their estimates are moving up or down, if you feel when you look at a stock yeah. that the price does not justify where it is because earnings are just ne negligible, for example, you have to be very careful with companies that aren't earning any money today. Yeah, yeah, and you're not going to bring it up, but QuantumScape, by the way, a battle of a short seller. The CEO is on with Jim Cramer tonight, Mad Money. There's a lot of action around SPACs and EVs. Just throwing that out there. Tune in tonight, the CEO with Jim. 
Very quickly, Carrie, I don't know if you planned a vacation. I've been poking around. Holy smokes, hotels and airfares are expensive to a lot of destinations this summer and at Christmas and all the holidays. I'm thinking Amex, right? It's going to benefit bigly. Yeah, so the payment companies like American Express, Visa, PayPal even, they get the benefit of more transactions. The consumers have more money, stimulus checks, people, lots more people working. The employment numbers were good. Interest rates going up help. And all of that travel is going to be great for American Express that didn't have any travel. You know, really for a year, no one was going Mm -hmm. anywhere for leisure. And business travel hasn't even started. So we think that's an inexpensive stock here. And we expect over the next two years that they will be able to probably beat those numbers and the stock will move higher. Yeah. And the Milken Conference saying they are in person in L.A. this October. Kerry Firestone, Amex, United Health, Schwab. Kerry, have a great day. We'll see you later. Take care. You too, Brian. All right, thank you. And whoop, just like that, it's over. Futures are higher, on pace for a great start to month of April as well. Squawking the gang, we'll see if it will keep on rolling. I'll see you on Monday. Have a spectacular weekend wherever in the world you may be. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.